1: This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Most teams either A, rely on their users to report errors, or B, use log files and lists of errors to debug problems. That's such a waste of time. Instantly know what's broken and why with Rollbar. Reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. It integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error. Give Rollbar try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the bootstrap plan with a 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com slash changelock.
0: Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JSPartyFM. And now on to the show. Today
2: is one of those days. My functions just feel far away. I can't quite sort my arrays. It's not a case of the Mondays, as much as it's a case of the, what day is it? I might know what's causing this haze. I have that post-independence day malaise. (laughs) (laughs) This poem brought to you by my utter lack of energy of what would have been a bad rap, but July 5th and all. What's up, guys? Happy (laughs) post-independence day. Yo. I'm joined today by Kevin Ball, a.k.a. K-Ball, and Nick Neesey. How was your guys' 4th of July? Mine
3: was rained out. I really enjoyed the rain uh, because my dog was able to settle down after everybody got rained out. Uh Oh, we had no rain over here.
4: It was lovely. We we had two different potlucks. We went to one for the morning with you know parade and sack races and three legged races and all that, and then in the evening and biked over to fireworks and all all the whole shebang. That was perfect fun. Yeah, it was good fun.
2: Very cool, very cool. Well, we're, we're a bit uh, under the weather because we're, uh, we were off yesterday doing various things, whether it was uh, K-Ball having fun or us getting rained on or Nick be enjoying the rain because his dog can relax. That's the problem with the 4th of July really is the dogs, you know, the animals, they suffer. Yeah. Um, at least some of them.
3: Truth. That's not to but say I didn't all... light off fireworks. I totally did. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, we were lighting them <laughs> off from inside the garage and throwing them out into the storm, which was kind of fun. Nice. You got to do something. But we're not here to talk about fireworks, we're here to talk about JavaScript and the web. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, This episode is episode 33, and we have three awesome segments for you today. Uh, Even though we're a little bit low on the energy, we're definitely going to bring the energy as these things definitely excite us. So uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is uh, an awesome feature of ES6, which has been around for a while. In fact, Brandon Ike was talking about it all the way back in 2010. But this feature, Proxies, uh, allows all sorts of interesting things and uh, was requested by a listener, WeedShaker8, who hangs out in our Slack. What's up, WeedShaker? Thanks for uh, requesting this to be talked about. And he even was messaging me and said he just went down the rabbit hole of this overlooked feature, ES6 Proxy. Um, It's very interesting what Brennan Ike was saying about it back in 2010. We have a talk in the show notes called Proxies Are Awesome. And it's a long talk by Brandon about proxies. That was back when they were very first introducing it as a feature. And it was just kind of existent inside of Firefox, I believe, at the time. And it's kind of a fun time capsule to go watch that. I watched the first 15 minutes or so. And he's talking about YayQuery, And he's talking about John Resig, And just the, the, the conversation at the time is, is very interesting to look back on. Um, but nonetheless, here we are in 2018. And it's, uh, this feature is very prominent and available in all browsers. Uh, except for IE. So all edges, I believe have, uh, these features, of course, it's not just one feature. There's a, there's a bunch of things involved. Um, but Mm. older IEs never had it and there's no polyfill as far as I can tell. So it was kind of unavailable unless you were in certain environments. Here it is today and we have proxies. So let's do an, uh, explain it like I'm five Nick or Kevin who feels the most qualified to describe what proxies are in JavaScript and how they work.
3: So a proxy object, uh, it's a constructor in uh, all of the browsers except IE, like Jared was saying. Uh, And it allows you to wrap um, any object uh, or function or class and redefine behaviors. So uh, you can say new proxy, pass in the object or function or whatever that you want to proxy, and then you pass in an object literal as the second argument. And that object literal has a number of traps uh, set on it. And those traps are just functions that you provide. and they're they're named things like get or um, get set, call, um, get prototype of, has, all of these these different traps, and you you define behavior that happens when those behaviors get called on whatever object you're proxying. So if you're proxying an object and you set a get trap, anytime that you try and actually get any, property off of that object, it's actually going to call your proxy function first and that proxy function can decide what it wants to do based on that. So that allows for a lot of power when you want to do something like uh, dynamically create properties on the fly or log things like log who's accessing what or throw errors if you don't have access to view a particular object or a particular um, property. Uh, And you can also do that for class instantiation or Uh, method calls and so you can really just get down in the middle and change the behavior of of the object that you're proxying so in in that way it's allowing us to do a little bit more metaprogramming in javascript Mm, very good cable anything to add to that yeah i mean i think that's that's pretty much
4: the idea it's letting you uh create an interceptor layer in between the final level object and and your code and i think there's a lot of really interesting use cases for this, particularly when you start looking at frameworks and libraries. I'm not mm-hmm. sure there's that many situations in which you know, your application code needs to be doing proxying. Uh, but if you're putting in, you know, th- this lets you essentially create middleware for JavaScript objects, right? It's yep. it's phenomenally powerful.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the application level concern that I would... I would say is definitely there, although there's other ways of doing this as well, is uh like with, with validations, with data validations, uh where you can intercept setters on specific properties and then validate the you know, whatever data is in that property, whether it's not something that you want to allow a user to set and then either raise or, you know, add some sort of an error class or something inside the proxy. So that's one application concern, but I agree with you that most of the use of these things tends to be um in well, we would just say lower level libraries from an application developers perspective.
3: Yeah. And this all came in ES twenty fifteen, uh, along with other metaprogramming features, uh, including the reflect API. And so we've had a lot of a little bit of reflection in JavaScript in the past with things like object.get prototype of or uh, I'm trying to think of another one, has own property, things like that where you can inspect mm. like at runtime an object and determine its structure uh, and then Make choices in your code based on that, and so there's there's also a reflect um global keyword uh, in JavaScript now that has uh several different um, uh, what are those called traps on it that you can use and so you can kind of use that in conjunction with uh, proxies to ensure that whatever you're trying to do you you can uh, you can call reflect and have it actually do what the original behavior was instead of you having to redefine mm-hmm. that each time. Um, and that, that's because it's important to make sure that you are following whatever rules are associated with with whatever trap that you're, you're actually um, working with. And that's because they all have specific rules about what should happen or what should be returned from it. And if you don't follow those, then a type error is thrown. But by just taking, mm. taking and using reflect. Like if you were just going to add like a logging layer, you can do the logging and then call the reflect um, variant of whatever you're doing, and that and return that, and it will make sure that it returns undefined or it returns the the new length or whatever um, that that you need to work with.
2: Let's talk a little bit about semantics here. So the the word trap I was reading on the Mozilla Developer Network. The reason why they use that word is like it's like harkening back to OS level traps. Um, which seems like to me is like a, is a far removed reason to name a thing. Um, does trap? I mean, just the idea of like you have a handler object and then you have traps. Are th- are these things uh, unnecessarily uh, opaque to developers? I mean, a word like a hook or a callback or like a like to me a hook just makes more mm-hmm. sense than trap. Does that trip you guys up or am I? standing No, like for sure.
3: Hook? And and those rules that I was uh, talking about where. Each trap has its own specified yeah. rules. Those are actually called invariants, which is also, I think, adds to confusion because it's not a, a common word that you use in in normal JavaScript programming.
4: I wonder, you know, one of the things that, that this raises for me is the more we add metaprogramming, like I come from Ruby, which is like king of the metaprogramming languages. And one of the things that we saw or I saw there is folks would You'd be beginning and you'd be like, oh, what's this metaprogramming? That's kind of cool. And then you'd get into this stage where it's like, metaprogram all the things. <laughs> right? And that usually caused problems because it's really easy to get caught in traps of your own complexity uh, when you start metaprogramming. And there's lots of edge cases and you get in leaky abstractions and all sorts of disaster. And so folks, as they climbed through from that intermediate level to become more ex- Uh, expert would go back to no 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 actually let's be really explicit about what we're doing and only metaprogram Mm -hmm. a few specific cases and i wonder if the reason for using this somewhat opaque language is to actually try to to say you know what i know you're used to doing with these things but you need to think about them differently you need to to be a little bit more careful than you would setting a normal handler function or something along those
2: lines that's an interesting idea. I mean, kind of like this is serious business and so slow down and, and kind of check yourself before you wreck yourself kind of thing.
4: Yeah. Cause it, it's so easy to wreck yourself. with <laughs> <programming>.
2: <laughs> It really is. It's like, what's the saying? Like enough string to hang yourself with or something like that.
4: Yeah. It, it gives you all the string that you need and then it will like, it's, it's special strings. So it keeps expanding in ways you don't expect
2: that's kind of just a natural life cycle of something new and something powerful, right? It's like, okay, here's this new powerful feature. Minute programming is amazing and what it allows us to do. And then it's, and then it's, it's sort of the typical hype cycle where it's like, okay, this is amazing. This is life changing. I mean, these are things that we developers say all the time. Like this might've changed my life. And whether we mean that tongue in cheek or like, actually this didn't change completely the way I program. Um, we say it a lot. And then it's kind of like you said, Kevin, it's, uh, just massive adoption everywhere. You know, I had this brand new shiny big hammer and just everything is a nail right now. And so you do all that and then you start to, you live in that, you know, you've made your bed and now you have to lie in it for a while and you start to realize, oh, this is an uncomfortable bed. This is a restrictive bed or this is a dangerous bed. And, you know, through time, then you learn like moderation and where to apply these things and where it's too far. But you can't really get to the end. Right? You can't get to that final understanding as, a, as an individual or even as a community until we kind of push those limits and see where they're at. So it's kind of like a, it's like a cycle of progress, but it's, it's not like we can skip the cycle because how do we know where the edges are if we don't push them?
3: Yeah, and I think that one nice thing about proxies are um, they're relatively safe to use if you want to use them. And what I mean is uh, you're, you could proxy something like the um the global array object but you're not actually changing that array object at all um or the, you're not actually changing the array class at all uh because you have to use the proxy uh that is returned from that new proxy call and so in that case if you were doing that it would return a new uh constructor for arrays that would pass through to the original array constructor but you're not changing arrays globally throughout your application or throughout your entire page it's only when you use that proxy so um you can kind of isolate it and use it mm. just in specific areas without affecting the entire page, unless you are, you know, returning the proxy object uh, as like your, your default export or the main export that you use.
2: So we discussed a little bit some of the use cases we mentioned, uh, uh, limiting property access or the, specifically on gets and sets. Nick, you talked about proxy and that validations uh, I referenced. Um, Profiling is another good one. You talked about the reflection APIs as well. The big one is, I think, what uh, Cable, you were alluding to early, which this allows you to, uh, to do data binding and to provide really uh, tools for other people to, uh, to build upon. So you were talking about a little bit of that with regard to Vue. Cable, do you want to open up that conversation? I know you've been diving into Vue or you've been in Vue for a while now and talk about some of uh, maybe its use of proxies or um, how frameworks are using these things.
4: Yeah, so Vue has this uh, data reactivity model that is kind of core to how Vue is doing its interactivity. So it's um, essentially, rather than something like the way that React and and Redux thinks about things where you have kind of a immutable state object that you're then replacing with other things, uh, Vue has a mutable object that it then tracks all the different dependencies. So what are the, the functions that depend on this? What is the, you know, where rendering is another type of function? Uh, Are there computed properties that depend on this? And then anytime that changes, it kind of traces through that dependency graph and uh, updates all the things that need to update. That right now today is done with a kind of fake proxy system that they built using getters and setters uh, because they want to support older versions of IE, things like that it has some odd edge cases because there's some things that you can't do right with getters and setters. um, or You can't track. Uh, Like for example, if you have an object, you can track and you know the set of keys, you can track changes to those keys and put it, but you actually, there's no way right now to intercept inserting a new key. So I put in a new key Um. and my reactivity model breaks and they have a wrapper that you can uh, use to, to put that in with the correct tracking in place, if you know that, okay, I've got this limitation. So instead of just directly writing to my object that I expect to be reactive, I need to use view.set to, to write to it so that it it gets all the right reactivity. But with proxies, those limitations would go away completely. And so there's uh, a branch under development. There's all sorts of stuff essentially to, to shift the reactivity model to be completely proxy based. Um, And then you've got, you know, all of your holes go away. You've got simpler code because proxies are what the, are designed for this. Getters and setters are only kind of sort of appropriate to this, and you have right. relatively seamless reactivity. Um, you know, coming back to our conversation about string to hang yourself, I'm actually torn about whether that reactivity model is the right approach. Um, you know, there is Reacts model adds some development level or developer level complexity to wrap your head around. Uh, But as a result, you end up with a much purer, easier to debug, fewer kind of edge cases in your development, Uh, whereas Vue's model feels a lot simpler to learn. But as you get into more advanced edge cases, it actually it's harder to reason about. Hmm. Um, You know, there's there's room for both. Um, Right. But, you know, and I, I actually I've been advocating Vue a lot to folks because I find it is much easier for people to wrap their heads around and. The Vue community is, it's a lot easier to get into that if you're not a hardcore developer, whereas there's a a pretty uh, opinionated section of the React community. And and I don't think this comes from the core team. Like Folks like Dan Abramoff are really good about embracing newcomers and not being uh, sort of exclusionary and things like that. But there's a a hardcore segment of the React team, or sorry, the React community that is very much... uh, Kind of exclusionary to folks coming from less hardcore backgrounds, <laughs> um, and Vue doesn't have that at all, you know. And they're they're embracing traditional templating, they're embracing you know CSS styling and various other things. Uh-huh. Uh, and Vue code feels a lot more like traditional web code than than React code does.
2: Right. So it's just, I mean it sounds like it's a a case of what do you optimize for, and and the two the two projects are optimizing for. Different things. I mean, they both want a lot of the similar things, but it's just kind of what angle do you look at the world? And exactly. it seems like it's onboarding focused and easier to to dive into. But then, as you've found, which I'm taking your word for it because I haven't found this, uh, is that as you get into the the nittier, grittier, the edge cases, these these fringe places, the more you use it, the deeper you dive, it has more kind of kinks in the armor on that side of the fence than I mean, does.
4: yes and no, right? So. The, the nice thing about it is that it actually, like, it has all the capacities that you need to do those more complex things, um, mm-hmm. but React sort of forces you there up front, right? So, like, if you're doing things the React way, you're not going to have to reshift your thinking as you start to get into these more complex cases because you're mm-hmm. already, you know, being very state-driven and, and dealing with immutability and being very careful about your data model. I see. And you don't have to do that. In Viewland, because you know, this reactivity model, which is beautiful and simple and easy to use, um, lets you—it you know, gives you a lot of string <laughs> once again. So you can actually—you can hang yourself pretty good with that. Um, and especially right now, with the the holes in their sort of proxy-like implementation, it's really easy to get confused with why isn't this being reactive in the way I expect it to?
2: Mm-hmm. So this uh, this proxy-based branch of View is it a branch uh, because of IE is, I mean, is it not, is that the reason why it's not mainline already? Are they waiting for a certain you know, browser share? Is it always going to be a fork? Like what's the situation? Because it's basically IE is the browser that does not have this, these features and edge does. Um, and so do you know if it's, it's, if that's a simple reason or is there actually divisions on like the ways that they want to go?
4: Um, I don't know the answer. Um, I do think that that... I mean, that is my understanding of the the situation is it's around IE. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so another thing, though, looking at the the Can I Use chart, something that we often neglect talking about things over in the US is some of the international browsers. Um, so uh, it looks like actually UC uh, browser, which is one of the pretty common ones over overseas, uh, does support proxies. The Baidu browser does not. Um, but... The reason I bring that up is Vue has a very large audience in China, mm. and so their browser market is probably pretty different than ours. And I don't know what the distribution is there, but that I think is going to influence it. Um, you know, something that's going to come up when we we talked about you know reusable components to to the nth degree when you start talking about frameworks is you have to be conscious of all those edge cases and users, right? Like, uh, for example, in uh, when I was working on Zurb Foundation, a lot we turned down a lot of features or put them as sort of extensions to the framework uh, because we had a large audience or a large set of users who were doing government work, and a lot of government work still has to support not only IE 11 but often IE 10 and nine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's when you're when you're doing framework and tool, frameworks and tooling you have to be a little bit more, well, I shouldn't say have to be. If you want to be good to your, kind to your users and you want to have a large audience, often you need to make more conservative technology support decisions.
2: Absolutely. Worth mentioning, uh, Relate in the chat says that IE is the reason why Ember had this this.get uh, fr- at the beginning, which Ember uh, goes all the way back to we 2 way data binding by default in Ember back in the day. Uh, they definitely had this dot get, and the thing about Ember is because it's very convention based. Okay, these are kind of fake proxies, right? They're their own implemented idea of a proxy, so they can provide those hooks. Is that you? It was basically based on basically based on convention. You had to use it this way in order for everything to work correctly, and that's kind of what you're you're mentioning with view is like there's holes if you use things slightly differently or slightly incorrectly, which could be plugged by the proxy feature if it was cut over to it.
4: Exactly. And Vue came along enough later that most of the time you don't have to use those, right? Like, yeah, I remember looking at Ember back in the day. You had to use get this.get, this.set for everything. And it seemed anyway. like, wow, what this is a lot of overhead, right? We're not just writing JavaScript. We're using this, this Ember magic. But what that allowed them to do was create essentially data reactivity right. um, way before Vue came along. And now Vue does it using getters and setters, but it has those holes. And since the the default, the way that it's typically taught is you're, you're just doing direct you know, definitions, you're just accessing the data, uh, it then gets confusing and there's a lot of holes when, when you're like, oh, but in this case, that doesn't actually work. And in that case, this doesn't actually work.
3: Right. Uh, I'll just say that another way that we've been kind of getting around that, not perfectly, like we can't do everything that proxies can do, but uh, another... Polyfillable way to get around this uh, has been decorators, uh, specifically in TypeScript, but it's also a proposal for TC thirty nine. But that is another way that you can kind of get in the middle of properties being set or uh, methods.
2: You're always tw- trying to squeeze the TypeScript <laughs> in there, aren't you, Nick?
3: I have a question that
4: um, I haven't so I haven't dug deeply into proxies. Um, are th- are all of the traps synchronous, or are there ways to deal with asynchronicity?
3: That's a good question.
2: I think they're all synchronous, but... I was like, can you have a trap that's asynchronous? It does, it's not trapping. Yeah, well, but it could trigger something asynchronous. Right, I, I mean, I say, I say that uh, a bit tongue-in-cheek because the idea is that it stops, but uh, or it looks like Weed Shaker in the chat saying they are synchronous. So can you trigger an asynchronous thing from a synchronous thing? You can have a synchronous that returns a promise. We're getting real-time feedback in the chat. So here's our answers. Uh, all right. So it sounds like there's... There are workarounds with promises but they're synchronous otherwise
4: interesting I wonder if there's um, timing constraints too or like what how fast do these things have to be before they start causing problems
2: but... well, you got enough rope you can just go out there and hang it <laughs> up hang hang it up and find <laughs> out <laughs>
1: This episode of JS Party is brought to you by Hired. One thing people hate doing is searching for a new job. It's so painful to search through open positions on every job board under the sun. The process to find a new job is such a mess. If only there was an easier way. Well, I'm here to tell you, there is. Our friends at Hired have made it so companies send you offers with salary benefits and even equity up front. all you have to do is answer a few questions to showcase who you are and what type of job you're looking for they work with more than six thousand companies from startups to large publicly traded companies and 14 major tech hubs in north america and europe you get to see all of your interview requests you can accept reject or make changes to their offer even before you talk with anyone and here's the kicker it's totally free. This isn't going to cost you anything. It's not like you have to go there and spend money to get this opportunity. And if you get a job through Hired, they're even going to give you a bonus. It's normally $300, but since you're a listener of JS Party, they're going to give you $600 instead. And even if you're not looking for a job, you can refer a friend and Hired will send you a check for, get this, $1,337 when they accept the job. As you can see, Hired makes it too easy. Get started at Hired.com slash JSParty party
2: all right we're back and we're going to talk about reusable components uh something that we would all love to have something that seems difficult is to first of all write (laughs) write reusable components but then actually share them with others, whether it's internal to our own teams or externally to the world. Of course, K-Ball, you have a lot of experience with sharing things in terms of front-end with the world with all the work on Zerb Foundation. Um, but today we're going to focus on a pretty new project called Bit, and you can find it at bitsource.io, B-I-T-S-R-C-I-O, link in the notes, where they are saying, imagine all of your components are organized on the cloud made discoverable for your team and synced in all your projects. That's bit. Now I should say that this is a commercial enterprise. Um, There is an open source. I mean, bit itself is open source and you can self host. And so they're kind of very much following kind of a GitHub model with bit where uh, the bit tooling is kind of like Git, and bit source IO is kind of like GitHub where they'll host your things and you could have repos and stuff for, for pay. So that's there, but the idea I think is somewhat universal and uh, all the bits are open source. So uh, worth talking about, interesting demo where they show people basically having some React components inside of their project and them kind of doing a bit init command line tool, very similar to Git. Kind of share, pushing those out to this you know globally available place and then somebody else effect- effectively cloning down components and using them on the other side. Now there's some cool trickery in there when you have your components on the website where you can actually see them live rendering, you can see all of their properties, uh, you can run UI tests against them, very much, and then documentation as well, very much kind of thinking about it like source code but moving up a level and saying, let's think about components as kind of the foundational unit of abstraction. abstraction. Of course, you can still get to the source code underneath as you're going to have to. But an interesting project, and I think brings up a lot of ideas and uh cable, I know you have opinions I have
3: opinions but let's just
2: start let's just start with where we're at today, like uh, aside from this particular project, component sharing how are people sharing components today that you guys know about, or how are you sharing components in your work today? It's a great question and it's it's a tricky
4: one. It's something that you know, as you might have guessed, I've thought about a lot uh, with the foundation background um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that makes Uh, shared components really tricky is that they have a tendency to be locked into implementation specifics. Um, And so, for example, I might have a set of React components and that works great on my application. But if some of those are sort of brand components and I want a piece of that to show up on my marketing site, chances are my marketing site is mostly not React. My marketing site is probably WordPress or some equivalent CMS, maybe running a very old version of jQuery. Yet I want those components that are central to my brand to be shared across these different environments and to to feel the same. And we, what will often happen now is you'll have like a component library of some sort that um, Foundation is, is an example, though Foundation is really kind of focused at a low level um, that don't add a lot of. Uh, sort of high or design language on top. Uh, another equivalent might be like right. material um, uh-huh. or Bootstrap or what have you, uh, where you've got a design language, you have an implementation, but your implementation is actually you have separate implementations per JavaScript environment. So, like let's use Bootstrap as an example because it's probably the the one that the most people have heard. Bootstrap is both a toolkit and a design language, uh, and there is a React Bootstrap component set where they re-implement all of the JavaScript-enabled components in React. There's a Vue version, there's an Angular version, uh, there's probably a Dojo version and an Ember version and all these things. Uh, and they are mostly the same. But what will happen is, is if you've got you know, these different environments, you end up with this almost funhouse mirror effect where you're almost re- replicating your components from place to place to place, but they behave just slightly differently in each one. So it's, mm. it's a really tricky problem. I don't have a good solution, by the way. I just <laughs> want to sort of lay out the the right. problem here. Is like people don't perceive somebody's brand as separated by okay, this is my web app and this is my mobile app and this is my uh, you know marketing site and this is whatever. Like to a consumer, that's all just that company and their product. And if things right. behave, they look mostly the same, but behave slightly differently across all of those. It it can really be confusing for folks. So you know, there's a there's a serious problem here.
2: Um, but I don't I don't know of anybody who's solving it well. Nick, do you have uh, similar similar findings with sharing components? So I know you work on lots of large scale applications that may, may already have you know Bootstrap just available. But is there sharing across repos or across teams anywhere in your work that you guys have dealt with these issues?
3: Um, a little bit, yeah. Uh, so, like the the main way that we're tackling this in Dojo is you can export individual components as a as web components, and then just bring those in anywhere um, and, and use them. But that doesn't necessarily get around all of the all of the issues that Gabe all brought up. I don't think, uh, but it does get us pretty close. And uh, the most recent project I worked on, we we did just that. We kind of created three individual components. We had examples of them working together in a Dojo app, but then we also exported them as uh, web components and had an example of them all running together. So they were all completely isolated and only cared about the, the properties um, that you passed to it going in and out. Uh, And that was it. Um, Other ones that I've seen really are, are like, I'm forgetting the name of that Ionic project uh, stencil uh, that kind of does the same thing Mm -hmm. where it's, you're just building individual web components and uh, doing that. So I guess taking the web components approaches is the, the way that I've been looking at it. I like that because
4: it gives you a sort of universal compile-to framework that, mm-hmm. and, and once again, then like a, a, a kind of interface or API that you can then interact with so that you can uh, take this component and share it. Because sharing within a, a JavaScript environment, like if we've standardized our company and we're doing everything in React and we're using a, you know, a Gatsby for our marketing site, whatever, like there's not a, actually a problem. Right. Like plenty of people are doing that well where they share components within the framework. Um, it's when you start bridging these gaps in the organization between, okay, this team's doing react, but the marketing team sure as heck isn't, um, that, that you run into problems. And if we can compile the web components, plug them in everywhere and still have a way to interact with them in a sort of way that works across these different frameworks, that's actually, that's a
2: really good solution. So let's turn our focus back to this particular project then instead of the, the, the generic uh, projects at large. I mean, it works with angular react, uh, Vue, node. And this idea of, of basically having kind of a separate, but integrated tracking of components, you know, separate, I mean, from the rest of your sort, like they're obviously still in your source code, but you're tagging them and you're exporting and importing and pushing and pulling components separately. um, But from within your own projects, right? Like not, not their own. Is that something that exactly like they're in your projects, but then they're also out here. And then they're in some other project, but there's also get involved. Is this something that's like resonating or is it confusing to you? I know the demo video is very nice and we encourage everybody to go watch it because I think these are ideas we're sharing. Um, but it's very it's basic and I would say somewhat idealistic in the way that they, they present it, the idea of it works very cleanly. But is this something that you think you'd actually pick up and try and use? So watching just for context, let's let's describe a little bit of
4: the the video a little more. So the idea they have is, okay, I have a component in my app. I'm going to tag it, push it, and suddenly it's a shared component with a version. I can pull it down in a different app, edit it there, tag it, push it, and I have a new version. Uh, So it's saying, okay, instead of having to separate this out into an individual package where I'm going to edit in that location, I'm going to be editing it in place in any one of a number of places and pushing and pulling from there. Uh, To me, this raises some huge red flags um, and the the reason I'm trying I've been trying to wrap my head around like what exactly is it that or how would I explain what I'm concerned with I think the the biggest thing here yeah. is you know conflating the technical problem of I'm going to separate this thing out into a separate repo with the uh-huh. decision-making programming problem of how do I make this something that is going to work well across multiple repos right like I could easily see if I have two people working on this, I make a a change here on this side, I push it up. Somebody else pulls it down. They say, oh, that's not the way I want it to behave. I'm going to make a different change, push it up. And instead of ending up with a well-defined shareable component with a clean interface, I end up with something that has 20 different application-specific pieces that happen to have been pushed up from all these different applications. The technical or the the decision-making challenge of how do I create a generalizable reusable component that has a clean interface and supports all of my use cases is hard and it's something like that's the hard part exactly that's the hard part it's not pulling it out into a repo like that yes it might be nice to automate that pull out into a repo but right there's a lot of thinking and decision making that needs to go on there and as you version and change things you need to have that bigger perspective of what are all the places this is going, not just how is this functioning in my app right now.
2: Yeah, and I mean, when I start to get nervous about this idea, like I'm thinking about it in a practical sense of using this tool alongside Git for version control, right? I start to think the issues, the, the, the thing that makes me nervous is like sharing components before they're ready, right? Like massive iteration on these components from two, two different developers who, who, are, who are sharing a UI widget across two projects with different needs. Yep. It sounds like management, hell, mm-hmm. right? It sounds like merge conflict is going to ha- you know, yeah, your git merge conflict. I'm sure there's a bit merge <laughs> conflict of some kind where I've made changes that are incompatible with the changes that you've made, and we're both pushing them up to the component, you know, cloud. To me, that, that makes me nervous. But then I say, well, that's really just, that would be like premature sharing of a component. Like it has to reach a certain level of maturation or flexibility. Like you said, the hard parts have to kind of be done before sharing the component is even useful. Otherwise, you know, you're just ask having two people or N people changing something that's like still in massively in flux, that's gonna ruin everybody's day. And so I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, what you're saying is resonating with me because I'm thinking a lot of this is like design and systems thinking, mm-hmm. you know, more so than the actual mechanics of how do I share this code?
4: Absolutely. I mean, I, I was thinking about this for a blog post recently that I did on ugSdevelopers.com, uh, right? The process that people tend to think of or go through is they write a component uh, for themselves. And, you know, I have a problem. I'm going to solve it. I'm going to build a component. And then it's very specific. And then they're, they're in a new place in their code base, in the same code base even. And they say, oh, I, I kind of want to solve that same problem. Okay, let me go back to that component, make it a little more reusable, use it there. And then, okay, I want to use it in a different project. I want to move it into an independent package. Hey, I need to make it even more reusable and think more carefully. Right? There's a, an evolution that goes on there that is not as simple as, mm-hmm.
2: hey, this is a component, I'm going to push it to the cloud. So let's shift the conversation a little bit here, because there's a good question coming into the chat room by Alex Ray. So, K-Ball, earlier you said if you had standardized, you know, on React, for instance, like the problem, you were saying unstandardized marketing sites versus application versus this and that. You have all these d- disparate technologies. But if you had standardized across the org on React, for instance, then how do you share components? They, uh, they say, I think the problem smaller shops face is that they build an app with a bunch of components and then they want to use that component in their marketing site or admin UI, et cetera. Mm-hmm. If that's all you want to do, like do you do you know of a good way to extract that and to and to share those things or is that also an unsolved problem?
4: Bringing it out into, you know, individual npm packages or a a framework library um that could be it could be published to npm, it could be just a repository um you know, separating out those components into something that is installable is relatively well solved. Um mm-hmm. you know, I think there's there's plenty of resources you can find I mean there's articles on how do I pull this thing out into its own package? Like, I don't think, unless I'm missing something, the technical challenge of how do I take a component and turn it into a uh, package that I can install into other applications is not, like, that's a that's a pretty solved problem.
3: I agree. That, that's solved for most simple use cases, but the problem comes up when you're working, like, if, if I'm working with my project that's using this generic set of components in an NPM package, I bring that in as a dependency, but then I discover a bug or I want to add a feature to it. Um, then there's actually a lot of of pain right now. Uh, at least for me, I haven't figured out how to, to very well do it uh, in linking those projects together locally for development. So I can make the changes I need in the package, in, in the package repo uh, and then test them in the, um, mm-hmm. the, the, mm-hmm. App that's using it, uh, and that further gets complicated when you have a transpilation step, whether that's uh, Babel or TypeScript, uh, because a lot of the tooling, like npm link, doesn't doesn't link properly to the like build directory uh, for for your TypeScript code, and so it's it's still pretty tough to do that. And if that could, if this can help solve that, uh, that would be a big step forward, I think. But I'm not I'm not clear that it does.
4: Hmm. That's a good point.
3: Interesting. Yeah, I've
4: primarily used npm link, uh, though I think a lot of times what I was doing there, yeah, was I was I was direct. I was not including the transpiled version. I was actually I would set up my project to pull in and do the compilation on the project side.
3: Hmm. What I'm doing right now is is not very easy. I'm I'm running a a build step that creates a tarball in the one project, and then I'm uh, pointing to that tarball in my other project and using it. Uh, so it's not not quite straightforward. Um, Right now, but I'm working on trying to fix that and make it simpler.
4: Yeah. Chris in the chat brings up that NPM link, it does link to the build directory. I mean, as I understand it, NPM link basically just puts a symbolic link to wherever your your directory is. So maybe the problem is what, how you're watching in the library side. Yeah. So that that the be. transpilation happens. Because a lot of libraries are set up such that uh, their standard build does not um, build into the the disk directory or something like that they only do that on release mm-hmm. um right. so if you're set up that way um you, you would probably need essentially a under development build version that is going to auto update your build directory yeah um yeah which is yeah for a for an open source library is pretty non-standard because you don't often want to be updating dist for all your change you want to do that once on release um Though, I mean, just thinking back, what we did in Foundation is we had the disk directory that was updated you know, once per release, but then we also had a build directory that was updated that we could use for for development. And so then on the client, as I was doing it, you could just basically, instead of looking straight at disk, you look at the build for your your library. Um, so then you're, you're tapping into that auto change, auto
2: update. Well, let's end this part of the conversation with a bit of a call to action for the listeners. If you are out there and have a whiz-bang solution for these things, or just something that you're relatively happy with, uh, hit us up and let us know. We would love to hear about what you're doing to manage the, the sharing of these components across your projects. Uh, JS Party FM on Twitter. We also have a ping repo where you can uh, holler at us, uh, tell us whatever you like, tell us you love the show, tell us you hate the show, tell us you'd like to hear about a specific topic or have a specific guest on. That's at github.com slash the changelog slash ping. You can open up an issue there and just let us know that you are interested in discussing JS Party, and that would be awesome.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Tim Smith, senior producer here at Changelog. You know how important it is to stay in the know. And our weekly newsletter helps you and thousands of other developers do exactly that. It's the developer news that matters, nothing more and nothing less. Visit changelog.com and subscribe today.
2: All right, guys, let's switch gears a little bit and let's let's talk to ourselves. Let's talk to our younger selves and do a little segment where uh, we reflect back and ask ourselves the question, if I had to start all over again in technology or in software development, but I had the advantage of being able to give myself advice, my younger self to make it easier this time around, what would you say to yourself and why? Start with you. Hmm. Nick.
3: Uh, I'm picturing myself like a, a an older Marty McFly going back in town or back, back in time and giving me this this book of sports bets, uh, but they're they're tech, right. bets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tech bets. Sports almanac. Tech bets. Yeah, uh, buy Apple. <laughs> It'd be MySpace is going to be around forever. Uh, no, um, yeah, I, I think that I would say um, definitely get focused on javascript earlier i didn't really i didn't touch javascript until i was completely out of college uh, and a year into my first job Um, and uh, i would say to to get involved in the the, my local community of of developers earlier uh, because i feel like that really helped out but i could have been there earlier uh, getting to know people and um, making connections like that whole networking thing Um, and Mm -hmm. that would be a really good thing to to have started earlier i'd also say learn version control like a lot sooner and actually use it in college.
2: So you didn't do any version control. Uh, I had
3: one, one project that they gave extra credit if you had a subversion repo. So once we got everything done, we wrote a script that randomly put commits into a subversion repo. So we'd get that, you know, the the lazy way.
2: I cut my version control teeth on Git and then started writing some WordPress plugins. And so I had to go back to Ah. SVN because WordPress.org, like their plugin system was built around subversion and I already had the distributed mental model in my head. Um, and I had to go back and use SVN just to publish some plugins on the wordpress.org. And I was so lost. I felt like the, like the biggest idiot. Because I just couldn't figure out how to use subversion after yeah. using Git. Which is kind of, I know a lot of people had to go the other way. They were you know, deep into subversion and were happy with it and everything. And then when Git came around, it was like a different, a different mental model. But I had the advantage of, of learning the, the newer mental model first. Oh, I started with like CVS, and then
0: oh, old school, old school,
4: and then then we moved to Mercurial, uh, mm-hmm. and, which is actually in many ways similar to Git, uh, and then
2: I, then some Subversion, and then Git, Git one. So you've done all the things. So if you had to go way, way, way back to the CVS days and and talk to young Kevin, what would you say to him? Good
4: question. Um. It was interesting listening to, to Nick talk because some of those things I did, right? I got into the community pretty early, um, was doing things and it was really good for me. I think the thing that I would tell myself that I didn't do that I should is start blogging early, blog about what you learn, document mm. your knowledge as you go and be freaking consistent about it. I was super, I had, mm. and, and and don't let those sites disappear. Like I think I've started three or four blogs in the past that have just died and disappeared. And I do it for a little while very inconsistent. Um, and number one, when you write about what you learn, you learn it better. Number two, now I'm out starting my business and trying to build an audience. And if I'd been doing that for as long as I've been in the industry, I'd be golden right now. <laughs> um, right. And, you know, it's number three, writing is an incredibly valuable skill. Writing is probably, you know, after the, Initial piece of learning software development communication is what, in my experience now, makes the difference between somebody who gets stuck in sort of line level developer jobs and somebody who's able to go on and have a bigger impact and continue to advance and and be promoted and various other things. Uh, you know, communication or software is a communication intensive endeavor, and that includes writing, that includes speaking, that includes being really good at listening, uh, all those different things. So. My advice to myself looking back is, yeah, keep doing the tech that you're doing, but pay more attention to the communication side of things, because it took me way too long to pick that up.
3: That's really good advice.
2: Jared, what would you do? What would you tell yourself? Woo. So this is advice I do give to young people getting into software development, and it took me too long to realize it, and I wish I would have known it right away, because I would have probably sprung into things a little faster. And that is that if you're trying to learn and you're trying to get to a level of proficiency in programming, in my opinion, the best way to do that, in addition to, I'm not saying like don't read books or watch, you know, videos or any of that, or go to school. Like I'm not saying don't do any of this, have a real world thing that you want to exist Amen. and then bring it into the world. Like that's the way that you learn. And you will learn so much and you will, (laughs) it will be hard. It will be feel impossible at times. And uh, eventually, and it's going to suck, but that's okay. Like the point is, is that it didn't exist and you want it to exist. And if you can just have your goal be, I'm going to make this one thing exist, then you will learn so much about software development, achieving that goal. And you will not have all the false starts of like throwaway demo toy apps that don't mean anything or they're somebody else's idea. And you're not actually you don't actually care about them. There's just not much to hold on to. And programming is really hard, especially when you don't I mean it's still really hard today for me. When I didn't know it how to do it, it was even harder, right? And so to get over the humps, which are big and treacherous and can stop you in your tracks and and completely destroy your will to continue, you kind of have to have something bigger that you're trying to build. And if you have that bigger thing and you can try to make that exist you'll learn a lot faster and a lot better. So that's what I would tell myself. Uh, Eventually I learned it. I learned it the slow way, but, uh, but yeah, everybody that I've met that's had like something like that, whether they're like passionate about it from a, you know, from whatever perspective, I know passion gets thrown around a lot. I'm not saying it has to be like super passionate, but it has to be something that you actually want to see exist and then make that your aim. And people who do that learn so fast. It's been amazing to see some people do that. So, all right, let's wrap up the show with a few shout outs. These are uh, projects, people, things that we think deserve
3: a shout. And so let's start with Nick. Cool. So I have a, a couple of things. Uh, the first is a Vim plugin called nVim TypeScript by Mike Hardington. And I just recently switched over to it and I I just love it. Um, I get really nice completion I can jump to definitions, to see where things are used, uh, and um, it plugs in with well, it, it plugs in with the the all of that completion stuff, and just makes TypeScript development in Vim so much easier that I don't have to look at VS Code anytime soon. Uh, the second thing is uh code sandbox and Yves van horn for that that's a uh, such a great project and so nice to be able to like set up full like working project examples in react and dojo and uh, others it just it just makes it so easy to to share knowledge uh, to respond on like stack overflow or in uh, Gitter channels with working examples and also to to see examples of bugs using that because it's you know, it's a working example that all I had to do was click a link to to have it set up. So that's just super nice. And then the third is a project called, uh, well, you've heard of a project called Prettier uh, that formats JavaScript syntax and, um, and right. makes that really nice. Well, there's another project called Pettier, and uh, it's pretty cool. It uh, <laughs> It's a... Like it, no. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I, I guess, uh, but <laughs> it's just a prettier config that randomizes all of the options and then arbitrarily switches between spaces and tabs. So just throw that in your project and have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. All
2: right, Cable, you're up. Shout outs.
4: All right. First off, I want to do a shout out to the organizers out there who make events and meetups happen uh, Nick you talked about getting involved with the community and I know you organize stuff so you're on my list here uh, I used to do a lot more of this oh. before I have kids I don't have time but uh, people like Tracy Lee from this.media uh, Jen Looper Progress Software continually organizing groups for learning for advancing the profession making uh, things more accessible to folks who don't have more traditional coding backgrounds all these sorts of things there's tons and tons of volunteer labor that goes into that. And these are the people that that make it work. And so, you know, just if you attend a meetup, go and thank the organizers because there's a lot of work that goes into making that happen. And without it, our community would be a lot less. Second shout out is a functional programming in JavaScript library that I ran into recently called Ramda. Uh supports currying functions, all sorts of other fun stuff. So if you're into functional programming or you wanna learn about functional programming, they have a lot of interesting articles they've written about it. Um, Definitely go check that out. Um, I haven't actually gotten the opportunity to use it in a project yet, but I'm super excited about it. And my final shout out is a little bit of a self shout out, but if you didn't know, I publish a weekly newsletter on front end stuff, uh, all things web. I I publish CSS, JavaScript, and just other awesome happenings on the web articles i do a lot of focus on fundamentals but i also include big happenings and good tutorials for all the major frameworks so that's the friday front
2: end you can find it on my website zendev.com and i can vouch for friday front ends quality because i'm a happy reader of friday front end so thank you very much for putting that together and definitely to the listeners if you like K Ball and you like the front end i mean what's not to love go check that out all right my two shout outs first one goes to jacob egger who is a developer, I think, in Australia, but I'm not sure his exact locale, a uh, developer of the Mac application called Postico, which is a Mac GUI for the Postgres database, which is my my database of choice. Um, for a long time, SQL Pro was, in my opinion, the best game in town in terms of very nice GUIs for, for databases, but it was SQL only, and many of us were waiting and waiting and waiting for... Uh, Alternate database support because there really wasn't anything awesome for Postgres. Postgre- Postico is awesome. Uh, it's not free; it's a paid application, but it's an indie developer, and so you know support that. And uh, it's something I use all day, every day, and so I just really appreciate that Jacob made it. The second one is Tmuxinator. Longtime screen user myself uh, finally made the Tmux cut over a couple years back, and a lot of that had to do with this ruby gem called tmuxinator so what tmuxinator does is it allows you to pre-configure and manage specific tmux sessions um, so that you can have everything set up for specific projects in a very declarative kind of a dot file format and then you can just uh, instead of typing tmux you just type mux and then you type the name of the session and so you can have your splits all set up you can have it change different directories run arbitrary scripts in specific panes And just really have a very nice starting place uh, for all of your sessions. So if you're like me and have a lot of projects at client work, I'm always hopping between specific things. I can just easily fire up this specific session, have it configured exactly the way I want to um, for that programming task. So Tmuxinator, which is built by a bunch of people, long time program. And so I'm just uh, giving them a shout out, something that I use and love every day all right that is our show for this week thanks everybody for tuning in on this july 5th hope you had fun stay tuned next week join k-ball and feroz as they welcome two guests from the electron team to talk about Electron. so stay tuned for that and thanks for listening we'll see you next week
0: all right thank you for tuning in to js party this week tuning live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com/slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com/slash community and do us a favor: share this show with a friend or just snap a podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, head to fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things around here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.